sin. God takes sin very seriously, that even in the millennial kingdom, because of what the serpent did, he will still slide on his stomach. That really is amazing, isn't it? It seems that the curse will be lifted from all of creation except the serpent, and of course the devil who used the serpent, and all those people who will never have repented from their defiance of God and actually trusted in Christ. But sin, you see, really is a big deal to God. Praise His name, though, He has provided a Redeemer who has paid our sin debt, providing a way for us to be restored to the way God originally meant us to be. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're in the midst of a series of lessons from Chapter 3 of Genesis about the fall of man. Because of that fall, there's a curse upon mankind and all of creation as well. That's how seriously God takes sin. And yet, He loves us so much that He gave us His only Son so that if we trust Him, we can still have eternal life. We'll get to that promise later in the class, but first, let's consider verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Does that sound extreme? Well, yeah, I guess it is, but there's a reason. Here's Pastor Steve with the explanation. Remember, early part of Genesis, you want to keep this in mind, that man was appointed to rule over the animal world. That's what it says in Genesis 1.28. It says, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, and that includes serpents. Rule over them. You are in charge of them. But this serpent, this snake, put himself above man, therefore his punishment fit his crime. His crime was exaltation, so his punishment was humiliation. Deep humiliation. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That is humiliation. Now, it may very well, and I don't know this to be a fact, but it may very well have been that the serpents originally had legs. Maybe the serpents originally had wings. Maybe the serpents originally, as God created him, stood upright. We do know he was shrewder than all the other animals in the uh, the field. He, Jesus even spoke about that in Matthew 10. Be wise as a serpent, be very shrewd. But now, he's a lowly reptile sliding and gliding and slithering on his stomach. That is deep humiliation. And to my knowledge, and I could be mistaken, but to my knowledge, the snake is the only animal that has a uh, a bony skeleton that moves upon its belly. In fact, I was watching um, on television recently the Discovery Channel, and they showed the skeleton of a snake. There are a lot of bones that a snake has. A lot of bones. In fact, the uh, the announcer said that oftentimes snakes can crack bones and still continue moving. They have just so many. Their whole body is just bone. But they still glide and slide along their, their belly. Now, what about the eating of dust? That's what we raised, a uh, question we raised earlier. Is the Bible in, in error because snakes don't literally, they don't actually eat dust? They don't do that. No, the Bible is not an error. And here's the answer. The expression eating dust is a figure of speech used commonly in the Bible 
and also ancient language to refer to humiliation and degradation. It is an expression of speech. And let me just show you this so you'll know that I didn't just invent that and come up with that. Micah, let's look at a few a few passages. In your Old Testament, you may not find Micah very quickly, so let me read it to you. Micah chapter 7, verse 17. God says this, speaking now of the humiliation of the Gentile nations, he says they will lick the dust like a serpent. Now, I don't mean they're going to literally lick the dust. They're just humbled, humiliated. Like reptiles of the earth, they'll come trembling uh, out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread and they will be afraid before him. Then Psalm 72 verse 9 says something else about the, the king's enemies and their humiliation. Psalm 72 verse 9, let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Once again, just an expression. I think maybe the most helpful one is Isaiah Chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23, and kings will be your guardians and and your uh, princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. Speaking of of Israel. And, And you know what? We even have a similar expression today. If a sports team, for example, gets beat really bad, we say they've bit the dust. They've bit the dust, and I'm not even going to mention names of teams, but anyway, (laughs) bit the dust. So here's the point. Here's the point. The serpent who once exalted himself is now in a perpetual state of humiliation. He has been reduced to a slithering reptile. And I want you to know this. The effects of this, of, of this curse won't even end. It will never end, even in the millennial kingdom, which is astounding. And, and I want you to see this. Isaiah 65, if you don't turn to it, at least mark it down. Isaiah 65, verse 25. Listen to this. God speaking of the millennial kingdom. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God is saying that even in the millennial kingdom, when the lamb and the lion uh, lie together because the curse is lifted, the snake will still be humbled and eat dust. That's an amazing, amazing statement. Now, what what does it say to us? How do you apply this? And don't think that this isn't a challenge to apply this to us. But I think that um, one thing we can say is that you see how seriously God takes sin. God takes sin very seriously, that even in the millennial kingdom, because of what the serpent did, he will still slide on his stomach. It also says to us, every time you see one of these uh, slithering snakes, it is a reminder to us, it ought to serve as a reminder from God of the fall of man. Next time you run from one, think about that. It ought to remind you that that the curse has come as a result of that fall. It is a reminder of the seriousness of sin, a visual ongoing reminder, and the premium that God puts on obedience. It also has, even though it wasn't a a person involved in this, it also says something about uh, don't exalt yourself. All of these things are wrapped into this. We We need a reminder, and that's what I think this is. It's an ongoing reminder every time you see a snake of of the importance of obedience, the importance of not exalting yourself, and how serious sin really is. So the serpent was sentenced to continual humiliation, but the serpent, keep in mind, was only a tool of the devil. Only a tool of the devil. So in verse 15, the verse that Bruce has been waiting for, 
God pronounces judgment on the devil himself. I believe that uh, verse 15 is really dealing with the devil. The serpent was sentenced to humiliation, but Satan's sentence was this, defeat by the seed of the woman. Notice verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, most likely, let's just use some sanctified thinking and project a few thoughts here. Most likely... Satan believed that with the fall of man, he had won the allegiance of Adam and Eve. That, I think that's a reasonable uh, conclusion. And, and, and I would think that he thought at this point he had won all of uh, their future children. After all, they were now sinners like he was. And in addition to that, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that he became the God of this world. And in addition to that, he must have thought that they would naturally follow him. It, it only makes sense. But if this is what the devil thought, and I would think that that's what he thought, he was absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong, because God's judgment upon him involved ongoing hostility between his seed and Eve's seed. Now, the question we need to ask and answer is, who is the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman? I don't think that this refers to snakes. I don't think that this refers to the, the general hatred that mankind has for snakes. Because at the end of this verse, and I'm just going to tell you why I take it that it's, it's talking about Satan now, not just the seed of, of snakes, that we don't like snakes. The end of this verse, he refers to a specific individual who defeats Satan. Uh, it's not a snake. He says the end uh, that he shall bruise you on the head, speaking of the devil, not, not a snake, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's an in, two individuals involved, not not snakes. Now, the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman refer to, watch this, the followers of Satan and the godly descendants of Eve. Not all the descendants are godly, but the godly descendants of Eve. And the reason we interpret it in this, this way is because the New Testament gives us tremendous support for that interpretation. For example, in John 8, verse 44, Jesus said to a group of religious leaders, he said, you are like your father, the devil. Jesus spoke in language like that. In Matthew 23, verse 20, uh, 33, when there were some religious leaders who were unbelievers, uh, very religious, but unbelievers coming to John the Baptist, he said, you brood of vipers, you snakes. John used that language. But I think the clearest passage is 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, I think, is the, is the clearest statement we have that interprets Genesis chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. That is, God's children practice their, the general direction of their life is righteousness, obedience, because Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The one whose direction of his life or her life is, is sinful is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, meaning that that's not their lifestyle. The key word is practice there, not commit, but practice. Because his seed, his seed, God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin. Why? He's got a new nature. That's why he cannot practice sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, 
From what beginning? From Genesis 3. That we should love one another, not as Cain, goes right back to Genesis, this is actually Genesis 4, not as Cain who was of the evil one, see he was a seed of the evil one, and he slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then John concludes this section, do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. And what is John saying? Cain was the first seed of Satan. We'll deal with Cain, and yes, we'll find out where he got his wife from. But we will deal with that at some later time. It is important for us to understand that God's children, according to these verses, God's children are to live differently than the devil's children. If this passage says anything to us, it says that God's children are to live differently than the devil's children. We obey God's word, not perfectly, but that is the desire of our hearts. That's the direction of our lives. We love one another. We don't practice sin. We live differently. And therefore, folks, this is why there is enmity, hostility, ongoing conflict and struggle between believers and unbelievers. Now, we love them in the Lord. But outside of the Lord, we hate, no, I'm kidding. We love them in the Lord, but there is a struggle. There is a conflict. And understand this. And, and the reason why, let me just read this to you. You ought to mark this down. This is a revolutionary verse. John 15, verses 18 and 19. Since the world hates you, Jesus affirmed that the world does hate you. I mean, I'll tell you that right now. If you're a believer in Christ, the world and those who are the seed of Satan hate you. Unbelievers hate you. Why? Jesus said, know that it hated me before it hated you. It only makes sense. Why did the world hate Christ? Why did it hate us? If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I can just tell you this. The reason the world hates us is because we're different than them. We're different. Our lifestyle is a rebuke to them. Jesus said, if you were, if I didn't take you out of the world and you were like them in your behavior, everybody would get along well. But your lifestyle and your desires and your ambitions and your value system is different from the world. Therefore, it's going to be heads that collide. You're bound to. You have a different philosophy of life, a different perspective on life. And it's because of this difference that the world hates you. That's the very reason why Cain rose up and and killed Abel. He was jealous. He hated him because Abel was of the godly seed and Cain was not. Cain was the seed of Satan, evil, and Abel was the seed of the woman, godly. And those of us who know Christ follow in that godly line. And and I might add this, this is one reason, one major reason why a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. If you're a young person thinking of, of getting married, you must always only think of marrying a believer. Don't fool with that stuff. You shouldn't marry an unbeliever. Satan's children and God's children have enmity. They're not to to get along. And Jesus, if I could put it this way, doesn't want Satan as an in-law. This is all part of the fall. It is an ongoing conflict. And so understand why the world has a problem with you and you with the world. But there's something else to this um, sentencing of Satan and his offspring and, and, and this. God's children have ongoing conflicts with Satan's children, with unbelievers. But one specific seed of the woman actually doesn't just have a conflict, but actually defeats Satan. And that's as we go back to Genesis 3. That's what the end of this verse is about. Speaking of a person, one of the seed shall bruise you, meaning Satan on the head, and you shall bruise him 
on the heel. You know what this is? This is the first statement or prophecy in the Bible about the Messiah. And it refers to Jesus who would come to die on the cross. This is the first proclamation of the gospel. Well, how do we know this? Well, 1 John 3, 8 says also, it it endorses this and clarifies it when it says that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 2 in just a few moments, but that's what Hebrews 2 says too. Now, this is a very symbolic language, but behind the symbolism is the literal cross. It is in the language of crushing a snake, or if you got close enough to a snake and you could, you'd step with your heel on its head. He might bruise your heel. He might sting you in the heel. He can't live without a head. His head's going to be crushed, powerless. You'll be hurting, but you won't die die from this in the sense of complete uh, fatality. Now, at the cross, Jesus delivered the death blow to Satan. And here's what it is. In symbolic language, he crushed the serpent's head by his death. But in the process, Jesus had to die. His heel was bruised. And he died, but it wasn't fatal in the sense that it wasn't final because he rose again from the dead. He conquered death. It was like a heel bruise. Jesus, and and this is in the language of the Old Testament, he was bruised for our iniquities. That's what this is talking about. Jesus defeated Satan. Satan no longer has the power over you. He is a doomed creature. He is doomed. He simply awaits his execution. I know what you're thinking. He's doomed, right? He seems pretty powerful in my life. How did Jesus defeat him when I'm so defeated at times from temptation? Well, let me, let me explain. Because at times I'm defeated too, and I understand where you're coming from. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. Everybody needs to look there. It's in the back of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2. And I told you that we'll, we'll get to this. And this kind of puts it in perspective because Satan is defeated. You need to know this. This will affect your life. This will give you liberty. This will set you free. He is defeated. Yes, he moves about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour, but he is defeated. His defeating, defeated in the sense that his power over you is very, very limited. And really, he doesn't have power over you, not ultimate power. Notice Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since then, the writer says, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same. That is, since we're flesh and blood, Jesus became flesh and blood. He became a real man. That through death, that is Christ's death on the cross, he, meaning Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. On the cross, Jesus rendered powerless. He defeated the devil who had at that point the power of death. Verse 15, and and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Now, let me explain. Satan's only power actually comes from the fact of God's character. It's a very interesting thought. His power only comes from the fact that God's character demands that sin be punished. That's where Satan has his power, that God's power demands that sin be punished. Therefore, his goal, the devil's goal, was to get Adam and Eve to sin so that God's in God's wrath... Not only would they fall, but God would send Adam and Eve and all of their children to hell because sin had to be punished eternally. It had to be punished. His goal was to keep and to send people to hell. That is Satan's ultimate goal. But what he failed to grasp, because Satan doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And the Bible wasn't written at this point for him to read ahead. 
What he failed to grasp is this, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, would come to earth and die on the cross to take the place of sinners and experience God's full wrath. He tasted hell for us so that those who trust him would never have to experience hell. And that is why Satan is a defeated enemy. His head has been crushed because divine forgiveness obtained at the cross renders him and his plan to send you to hell powerless. He can't do it. It can't happen. It can't happen because Jesus Christ has provided a way for you to be forgiven, and yet God's justice is still intact. Which means, according to Hebrews chapter 2, you never need fear death. Until I became a Christian, that was the fear that drove me to depression. There was no hope. The fear of death. What happens when you die? And many people, in fact, most people are in bondage to it. And anybody says, I don't want to talk about it. That just indicates they're in bondage to it. They're afraid of it. But now you don't need to fear death because one seed of the woman, Jesus, the Messiah, has defeated Satan by crushing his head at the cross. And in the process, he had his heel bruised, if you will. But it wasn't final and it wasn't fatal because he rose from the dead. So the serpent was sentenced, and praise God we don't have to fear death. I hope that liberates you. The serpent was sentenced to humiliation. Satan was sentenced to defeat by the seed of the woman. But what about the woman herself? She's not going to get away with this. The woman's sentence was twofold, as we look back at Genesis 3, twofold. Number one was increased pain in childbirth, and number two was a struggle with her husband. Verse 16 begins this way. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, prior to the fall, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So it was always his plan that they would have children. But now after the fall, giving birth is going to be a painful ordeal for women. Every time a woman experiences labor pains, it serves as a reminder of Eve's part in the fall of mankind. And that's not difficult to understand. I mean, it may be horrible for them to experience, and I don't want to be, you know, glib about that, but I think this is rather self-evident, and I don't think we need to go into to clarifying that. But there's a second aspect of her punishment, and that's not as easy to understand. Verse 16 says, Yet your desire shall, uh, shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this has been interpreted several different ways. The most common way to interpret is this, that a wife's sexual desires for her husband, even though this would result in uh, more pain in childbearing. And you know what? That, to one degree, fits the context. Yeah, she's going to have pain in, in giving birth, so why would she have more, but yet she's drawn to her husband? And there's a certain truth to that, but I don't think that's what Genesis 3 is talking about. And neither do I. I hate to leave you hanging like that, but we're almost out of time. We'll find out what Pastor Steve has noticed about that part of this verse on the next Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're in town on a Sunday and you want to find a good place to worship and hear good Bible teaching, the place to go is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. For service times and directions, call Lakeside at 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. The phone number again is 727-441-1714. If you'd like to help support this ministry, or if you want to listen again to today's broadcast or any previous program, 
Our web address is versebyverseradio.org. Click the message archive link to browse our extensive collection of verse-by-verse programming. They are free for you to stream or download. And there's a giving link if you'd like to help with the cost of keeping verse-by-verse on the air. If not for our generous givers, we wouldn't be here. So thank you for your gifts and for your prayers, too. I'm Jerry Peterson. I give you a clue about what Pastor Steve and, and I see in the verse that he just quoted. You ever heard of the Battle of the Sexes? Join us next time to find out more. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. It's Andrew Southwick, and I want to tell you about the Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise, happening August 28th through September 4th. On the Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise, you'll enjoy the splendor of God's creation while worshiping with acclaimed Christian music artist Laura Story and hearing inspiring messages from the Word of